You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to the Driving Law podcast. I am Kyla Lee and with me... Paul Doroshenko. Yeah, sometimes reluctant co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Somebody else you were supposed to arrange for last week and for this week. Yes, there was. Arranging takes time. But arranging takes time and, you know, it's not like my sometimes reluctant co-host will ever arrange and record without me. So, you know... I know it all falls to you. Sucks you get a to lot done. Me. You get a lot done. You get your your video, your YouTube video done every week. You've got weird and wacky Wednesdays. You've got this week. You helped me with the Throwback Thursday, which I didn't do last week because of my car accident. So there's a lot on your plate. There's and, a lot, and that's just sort of social media, not even including anything to do with the many, many, many files that you resolve every week. Can you fail it every two weeks? I just, Can you, you fail know, it? Yeah. You know, I think about those people out there who take four or five days to respond to an email or return a phone call. And I think, good Lord, if I had their jobs. I know. Uh, it's upsetting. Yeah. It's I upsetting. Get, I could get those people's jobs done in a week and still have time left for my job. Uh, you accomplish more in a day than a lot of people do in a week. It's fine. Anyway, uh, we have a lot to talk about with ride sharing. And before we get into the two big ride-sharing blunder stories of this week, I wanted to talk about the ride-sharing blunder that is British Columbia. Well, it was all supposed to happen for... By Christmas. Well, it was supposed to happen for September. Well, yeah. Originally. By fall. And I've said all along that it's not going to happen until until YVR has got the setup there, their building, uh, to be able to handle it. I don't think that, um, I, I, I think this is all set to be timed to the construction project and the parkade at YVR. I disagree with you. Um, but what I am very interested to see is the fact that uh, Uber has uh, pulled out of, uh, or sorry, not Uber, Lyft. No, Cater. Sorry. It's been a long day. Uh, Cater has pulled out of British Columbia. They've decided they're no longer into it. It's not going to happen. They are no longer running operations in BC. Remember, Cater was working with Blacktop Cabs as like an app-based delivery service for the cab drivers, but the plan was to ultimately transition it into ride-sharing. So why did they give up? They gave up. This is news to me. You're yes. T- yeah. They gave up uh, what they said uh, was for business reasons, basically. Um, and some people are speculating that one of the reasons has to do with the fact that they had promised the drivers that they would somehow make more than taxi drivers. But when you look at like ride sharing companies in other jurisdictions, they're having a lot of trouble making ends meet. And if they're going to pay more than the competition, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. And I mean, there's a glut of Uber drivers in a lot of locations. Uber drivers can often sit for hours waiting for a, uh, a job. I think also, though, there is like a fear that came from what's been going on at the Supreme Court of Canada. Oh, 
What K? Tell me. <laughs> well, like a month ago, maybe the Supreme Court of Canada heard arguments in the uh, case involving Uber, Heller and Uber. Um, this was talked about. Oh, this is the labor yes. labor issues. Okay, yes, this yeah. was the episode of the they, podcast with yeah. Kirsten Hume Scrimshaw, okay. um, and she had talked about how you know there's this dispute between Uber and Mr. Heller about the enforceability and the fairness of the arbitration clause in the driver contract. And if that arbitration clause is invalid, then the court will have to make a determination about whether or not Uber drivers in Ontario are employees of Uber, which could be financially disastrous for the company because then they would have to provide breaks, overtime pay, benefits, all of the things that the gig economy collect holiday pay yeah do uh, all the things that cost remit businesses remit money. remit uh, taxes and Canada pension you know I just had a brilliant idea Paul what? let's start an app that allows us to run legal services on the gig economy model so like you just post on the app your legal issue and then and then lawyers just basically bid for it cheapest cheapest person gets it and then we take 75% of the money just like Uber well, I joked or skip the dishes I joked about that they, they, they could do that with prosecutors or they could do it with legal aid files yeah you know, bid on the file yeah. um, that that's would, a race to the bottom yeah that's a race to the bottom it would be awful yeah but I mean I I think Cater was probably afraid because it appeared from the way the wind was blowing off the bench at the Supreme Court of Canada hearing that Uber was not going to be successful. And of course, we never know. You never know from the questions the judges are asking which way they're actually leaning. Sometimes you know, but sometimes you know, lot, but most of the time the questions, even if they're like aggressively asked, it doesn't mean that you're going to succeed. No, but I think having like a clause that makes your person subject to the contract who is at a huge power disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the company have to you know commence their claim and deal with it under arbitration according to the laws of some European country that they've never been to or can afford to fly to or can afford the filing fees for I suspect that the Supreme Court of Canada judges are going to say that that is so illusory as to not provide a remedy. That's just my guess. Could be. I mean, I suspect that uh, it's the same sort of thing that we saw with Walmart. Uh, Walmart uh, had the one store in Quebec that uh, sought to unionize and Walmart then closed the store. Uh, after the uh, they lost the battle in the courts, so yeah. you know that could be that could be uh, the same sort of course of action that we're going to see with uh, with some ride sharing. But I, so I, maybe I, Uber I, drivers should get on unionizing now. Well, I mean, it's it can still be a, a profitable venture for somebody. It's just that you know the rush to the bottom is not going to be the bottom of no protection at all for drivers. Um, you know, there's, it's going to be like anything else. There will be some protection for, for the drivers, uh, you know, through the, through the courts and, and through the legislation that exists to protect employees. Okay. Well, it's just not going to be as cheap as we are accustomed to speaking, in places where we go and use Uber and there's no protection for people. Speaking of protecting employees, Uber has really like doubled down on the 
you're not employees and we treat you differently because you're not employees. Um, a story was published on December 4th in Vice uh, explaining that Uber at the office in uh, at least one location in Rhode Island had two separate washrooms. One washroom at the office was for employees and another washroom at the office was for partners, AKA their drivers. Contractors as they would classify them probably. Like literally here's a white collar washroom for all the people doing our accounting and our white collar jobs. And here's a blue collar washroom for all the people driving the all cars. The exploited. Yeah. They have more exploited people. It is like literally the most classist thing. Well, I mean, having a different washroom for the executives and for the, uh, for the laborers is not uncommon. I worked in a print shop in Edmonton back when I was 17, 18, 19 or something like that. Uh, at Ed Web Printers, and uh, we had a separate washroom for you know me working in the book bindery uh, than the management up front. I used to go use the management washroom, and I'd run into the managers in the washroom. The only reason I went there was because it was clean and I was tidy, uh, and people didn't. <laughs> I was only questioned once or twice, but yes, I and I opposed the classist washrooms. But it's not exactly an uncommon thing. I'm not saying that it's uncommon, but it's wrong. Like, and to separate the, like, the two washrooms were door next to door, like you'd see in a restaurant, you know, two stalls. Well, I think the intention there was to try and keep up the fraud that their, that their drivers are not employees or that their, you know, contractors are not employees. And You know, I think when you have the majority of your driver staff being people that are either, you know, low income, many of them immigrants who can't get jobs in other areas, many of them racial minorities, what you're doing is segregation. I'm not, I wouldn't say that it's segregation. I I'm not, it gets I'm, real close. I'm not, I'm not supportive it's of that. I'm not supportive. I'm not supportive of that characterization, but I, you know, I, I think it's absurd. <laughs> I think it's stupid, but I don't, I wouldn't come to that characterization in the end. I think clearly it was something they were trying to set up the evidence so they could say and affidavits down the road, look, we have even have different washrooms for the people who are, who are, uh, our partners as opposed to the people who are, uh, employees of the company. You know what I would say though, if I were the judge hearing that case, well, of course, well, on me. tell me, tell me, I know what you tell would me, I would know tell you, me counsel. You want me to pretend to tell me about the argument? washrooms counsel. Well, your honor, uh, the, issue here is that that uh, no i mean of course you tell be... me that the court is going to draw the line on the division between employee and contractor based on where you poop Some, i'm sorry but no somebody somebody thought that that might be an effective thing thought that it, they were setting up an argument for down the road and i'm sure that's why they made the decision to do it hey uber hire me to be your lawyer i'll advise you not to do dumb shit like that <laughs> Well, it was, I mean, it's probably a one line in an affidavit somewhere. Well, we have, you know, separate facilities for employees and partners. Uh, maybe the partner washroom is much more luxurious. I don't know. Maybe they treat them better. I don't know. I don't like it. It stinks to me. It doesn't matter if it's better. Well, it's a washroom. Of course it stinks. Certain times it's, of the day. No, no. 
It's the whole thing is After just, Larry's been in there. It's untoward. I do not like it. Well, I think it was absolutely foolish. And, of course, they look awful when they do this and, of course, and it gets on the news. Yep. And it causes a lot of controversy. Anyway, they have apologized and said that they regret it. But that's not the biggest thing that Uber's been apologizing for yeah, this week. This Uber is all over the news this week. Holy. Uber is having a bad week. Ride sharing is having a bad moment. It's not just in BC, just a bad moment overall. Yep. Well, this is what I think, you know, in part, this is what happens when you don't regulate by having employees, when you don't, you know, create this relationship, you create people who feel that they can get away with things. You just want over-regulation. It's going to increase the prices. We want competition. Except for the crimes. I actually don't so. care about the prices or overregulation or competition because we don't have any ride sharing currently in BC, so I legit do not care. I'd rather just get it. <laughs> Whatever we get oh, will no. be better than what we've currently now, got. Now you're contradicting yourself. So, no, I not. mean, you're saying that. Um, so, what we're talking about, of course, let's yes. skip right ahead Sorry. to it is. Huge, ridiculously huge number of sex assaults. Insane. Like 5,000 sex assaults in 2017 to 2018. Yeah. Uh, rapes, they characterize them. There's rapes, there's gropes, there's you name it. Um, yeah, to, from, from 2017 to 2018, so over a two-year span, there were 5,936 sexual assaults reported. That's reports from riders and drivers. And let's just pause here to remember how many sexual assaults go unreported. Oh, is there a is there a button on the app? I was sexually assaulted. There should be. There should be a button, a crisis button on the app, a little button that you can push at any point in the ride when something bad is happening. It will I immediately assume, alert the police. I assume that those are are people who reported it to the police. I think they're people who, who reported, reported it to Uber to Uber because um, this is reports from riders and drivers. And Uber, if they reported it to the police, Uber might not know about it. So what's your remedy if you've been sexually assaulted in Uber? Well, I guess it depends I mean, in part on whether or not Uber is an employer or merely the person facilitating the contract, because their level of obligation would be different. Would it? Would it? I think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they're facilitating the whole thing. I think they'd be... Well, no, they're I not mean, facilitating you know a rape. It's, it's actually... No, they're not facilitating a rape. Of course not. But the... Um, the um, they're facilitating you being in that circumstance. I, I, I'm sure it's probably someone could tell us it's going to be differently regulated by provincial legislation right across the country and and Uber contracts and all sorts of things. Obviously, I mean, if you're sexually assaulted, call the police. But I can't believe how many sexual assaults that is. It's a lot. That's 1.3 billion rides and in that two-year period. And... Almost 6,000 reported sexual assaults, which is, you know, statistically, if you do the math It's a ridiculously that, small number, actually. It's a ridiculously small number, but 
is a ridiculously high number for a system that is supposed to provide safety. I mean, when you're wasted and you want to get home safe, when you get into a taxi, you have this, this sort of, you know, protection bubble. The, the numbers on this on taxis are not even approaching this. No, I'm sure they're not. Um, and it's partially because you're separated more in a taxi and there's sometimes there's plastic there. There's more regulation. There's requirements for, for recording there's devices. cameras and stuff in them, yeah. Yep. There's, you know, and so maybe I am a fan of over-regulation, but if over-regulation is going to prevent some sex assaults, I'm not so, not so against it. 1.3 billion rides. Mm-hmm. 229 rapes. Yeah. Um, that's just rapes. They, you know, they're classifying that as full-on rape. I'll just pause to note that in Canada, we don't have an offense of rape. Yeah, but Uber does. Uber has a, you know, keeps track of it that way. Yeah, it's a fairly small number. Yeah. I mean, every one of them is gruesome and horrible, but it's a fairly small number. It's a fairly small number. Relative to the number of rides. Of what's been reported. Well, but I, I think I bet all the reporting of sexual assault, rapes. you bet all the rapes are reported. No, I bet I bet a vast majority of rapes are reported. The other sexual assaults, gropes and things like that, probably less likely. Your bet does not align with social science research no. on the topic. Well, I'm more than happy to be corrected. Anyway, um, they're not doing enough, people say, to protect the safety of, of riders and drivers. Um, there's a, a class action a, lawsuit. A significant portion, a, a, a number of those people were, were drivers who were sexually assaulted too. Well, yeah. I, I just first, my first thought was all riders, but it, drivers. No, the drivers are vulnerable too, because they're not protected by things like recording devices and, and regulation. You know, you have, look, how often... You Have think you, recording devices and regulation are the answer I here. think recording devices are a strong deterrent. Look at what happened on that to that woman that was on the Coquihalla hitchhiking who came over here. She's just hitchhiking along the Coquihalla, and some guy picks her up and is driving along giving her a ride when all of a sudden he just figures, well, she's here, I guess I'll rape her. And then he did. And this is like his agreed statement of facts in court. He had no motive for it. He picked her up to give her a ride. And then because she was there, changed his mind and decided to rape her and then killed her. So she couldn't ID him. She wasn't an Uber driver, though. No, but like this is you have people out there who commit crimes of opportunity. And we know that. Violent sexual assault offenses are most commonly committed against women. And if you've ever taken taxis before, you know that the majority of taxi drivers are not women. Uber does nothing to protect women drivers. Nothing? No. What? Name one thing you've seen in an Uber. I've seen nothing to protect women drivers. Yeah, we've Uber. been in dozens of Ubers. We've never seen a single thing. So, yeah. I, I think regulation does make a difference because maybe that guy who picked up that woman on the highway wouldn't have raped her if he thought he would get caught. As we know from social science research, the perception that you're going to get caught, we talk about this about roadblocks, right? Having it's consistent visible enforcement. 
the perception you're going to be caught decreases the likelihood that you're going to commit an offense. Which is part of the issue I think we're seeing such a high property crime increase in Vancouver in the last few years because the perception that you're going to be caught has dropped substantially. Prosecuted. The assumption is you're not going to be prosecuted. Investigated even. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so yes, I, I mean, of course, I'm a supporter of cameras in all sorts of things to particularly in these cases where where people are vulnerable um you know we have cameras in the in the stairwells of our office and in a couple of common areas uh and part of that is a deterrent now another um bit of data that's not being talked about as much that's come out of this mm. uber report um this is like uber's first ever safety report um is their crash data so from 2017 to um uh, to 2018, there were 107 deaths from crashes and 97 crashes, which means that there were 10 crashes, I think, where two people died or something like that. 107 deaths from crashes. 97, 97 crashes. crashes reported. So there were an extra 10 <clears throat> people, meaning that some crashes had multiple fatalities. Oh, okay. That would make sense. Yeah. Two people dying in the crash, I guess. Yeah, or seven. The driver and somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... Small number of crashes. It's actually a very small number of crashes. If you look at that over the 1.3 billion rides, um, it's half the U.S. national crash rate for fatal crashes, which supports something you've said before. What's that? What did I say? That we get these, you know, we get clients that are professional drivers Um, or people who drive a lot in the course of their work who say, I drive, you know, so many thousand kilometers a year or so many hundred kilometers a month or whatever the case may be. hundred a day, several hundred a day often. Um, And I'm a much safer driver than people who are driving less often than me. Just because I have more tickets doesn't necessarily mean I'm a bad driver. Just the incidence of of me being on the road and therefore the likelihood I'm going to get some type of a ticket is increased. Yeah, this this is a real irritant for me because people come to me and they tell me, you know, they've got a ticket and they've got a few tickets on their record and they're professional drivers. And they make the argument to me that, um, that the reason that they've got more tickets is just because of the amount of time that they're out there on the road. And I agree with them. The problem is um, when you're trying to explain that to an adjudicator uh, at ICBC with respect to a potential driving prohibition, uh, or you're trying to explain that to a justice of the peace in court, the answer that you always get is, well, your client's a professional driver, he should know better. But the point is that they're driving so much and we all make mistakes driving, mm-hmm. uh, and they may be fairly minor mistakes, but police usually don't cut brakes for professional drivers. You, you um, were following me the other a couple of weeks ago on the road at night. I can't remember. We were going to one of our offices for some reason, and I was on the phone with you, and then a work call came in. So I hung up on you, and I took the work call, while sitting at a red light, and then drove through the red light. You did? Yeah, you watched me. And then you phoned me back, and you were like, what the hell did you just do? And I was like, I have, like, it was literally an incidence of distracted driving. I wasn't 
you know, my phone was, was where it was supposed to be, but I was just distracted by the call. You weren't talking to me unless I've forgotten because of my head injury from my accident. You've forgotten. You were right behind me. You watched the whole thing. You were like, what the fuck did you do? Hmm. Um, Just drove through a stale red. (laughs) Anyway, you're now taking us, you're distracted us from our I was making your point, which was that everybody makes a mistake in their driving. And mine was a pretty profound mistake, but it was a mistake. But if you're driving and you're in your car for six or eight hours a day in your vehicle driving uh, and you make a mistake, even if you make... 50% 50% of the mistakes that other people make, you're still making, you know, mistakes as you're driving. And if the police see you and decide that they're going to ticket you for whatever your mistake was an error that was a ticketable offense, yeah, you're going to get more tickets as a professional driver. And there are also professional drivers who manage to go years without tickets. Usually those are long haul truckers, um, you know, where they're <laughs> you're, you're less likely to be in those circumstances of having the police even see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sympathetic to those drivers with those points. And, and, you know, there's, it's just a matter of the number of, of potential incidents that you have. You know, we deal with, um, with hundreds of files, not just one or two files. Uh, and we, as a result, see more things than other people will see um, in our office. Uh, just, you know, it's just a result of the number of files that we get. Yep. Speaking of seeing things and distracted driving, I guess now, Paul, it's time for our ridiculous driver of the week. Which one? The one you saw this week. This is your story. Okay. So this was a person who was, um, uh, had a fire truck behind them and they were driving a, uh, that's not the ridiculous driver of the week. Oh, that's our, our next topic. Oh, okay. Selfie stick woman. Oh, the selfie stick woman. Yeah. Come on. I'm sorry. Yeah. I told you at See, the time. See, look, I had I a head like, injury. That's our ridiculous. I had a head injury. Okay. Oh, yeah, no. So I was in Richmond. I was driving home from Richmond from the office. I was uh, um, in the right-hand lane, and I looked to the left, and there was a woman in a white Range Rover who was using her selfie stick. It um, had to be a white Range Rover, right? It had to be a white Range Rover. Yeah, it was like the big Range Rover, too. Um, selfie stick and she was FaceTiming somebody as, as she was driving. So she was holding the selfie stick in her right hand. First time looking, I'm trying to like, what has she got in her right hand? What has she got in her right hand? And then I look and I see the phones hovering up on the, above the dash. Um, and you could see that there's, you know, another face on the phone. Um, and, uh, she's talking to it. And she's holding it up and she's using her phone with a, a selfie stick. Are you? Of if course, you have you're a using an electronic stick. device. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I mean, I, I wrote a joking tweet about this, um, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. I want to talk through this for, for a minute because I think people could come to the mistaken assumption that you can use a selfie stick while driving. A selfie stick is a stick. So, you're not holding an electronic device when you are using a selfie stick. You're merely holding a stick. And there is no prohibition on holding a stick while driving. Yeah, you're just extending your, your uh, holding it. So you apply Justice so. Adair's logic about headphones from the provincial court decision that he wrote where the individual had earbuds in um, and the uh, the judicial justice in traffic court found that by putting earbuds in the earbuds essentially became an extension of the electronic device 
where was the phone mounted in that case or where was the phone? It was in the cup holder. It was loose. Mm, But that was before the cup holder decision. That was after Partridge. Was it? Mm. Yes. And the reason that it was this, this case was so important was because it talked about whether or not having earbuds in constituted holding, because if you only have one earbud in you're you're lawful if the phone is mounted. But if the phone is in the cup holder and you have an earbud in, then according to Justice Adair's decision, you're holding the phone in a position in which it may be used. I think holding with your it, ears. Holding it in a selfie stick is no different than holding it with a pair of gloves on. You're you're still just holding it. Be like holding it with a pair of pliers. I'm just saying there's an arguable case on strict interpretation of the legislation that supports my position. I don't think there is. And I think anybody would be convicted under those circumstances. Of course they'd be convicted. The, uh, but there's an arguable uh, the, case. Uh, one wonders, I, I mean... I wondered whether or not this person realizes they're breaking the law or if they just don't give a damn. Well, this is the and thing. I a think people don't realize it. Well, I mean, I look how many people just are still using their phones all the time. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't give a damn or they think that they're, you know, if they just won't get caught, it'll be fine. There's one officer, a Vancouver Police Department sergeant. I know who you're thinking of. Yes. Who has a Twitter account? I don't know. Um, This individual issues probably more cell phone tickets. Oh, I was thinking of somebody else. Oh, were you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, This individual issues probably more cell phone tickets than anybody else. And I honestly, like every time I see him in traffic court, I honestly think that people don't care and aren't getting the message and aren't changing their behavior because every time I see him, he's got the entire courtroom to himself for multiple sessions with like 15 people in each session, just tickets that he's issued. And he takes photographs of the people with their cell phones in their hands. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's it's it, you know, whenever I have a case with him, I always uh, I always enjoy it because I know I'm gonna get evidence of exactly what he's alleging. And it makes it just easier for me to get instructions from my client and easier to just deal with the whole thing. Uh, in any event, yeah, people are not getting the message. People, and, no, because these numbers and should be people, decreasing. Well, um, but back to my um, ridiculous driver of the week. Um, you know, I, I just, when you see that, you think to yourself, the arrogance to do that uh, just the sense that it doesn't matter going, going through an intersection, looking at the phone um, that's held up floating over the dash. You don't not know even that looking. that wasn't an emergency selfie stick FaceTime call, Paul. That's true. Maybe she was calling 911 on FaceTime. You can do that. They do They do FaceTime 911 for people who use sign language. I, look, I couldn't tell whether or not it was FaceTime. It looked like it was FaceTime because it looked like there was somebody else's face at the other end, somebody talking. I mean, I couldn't see what maybe app was, was open. Maybe was the background on her phone. Could be. Maybe she was making a video of something. Or maybe, she was, uh, maybe she was watching a movie. All those things are possible. Um or just staring at a photo of a loved one. I just couldn't believe that she was having a selfie stick going across her, out across her dash. I love it. I uh, love it. It's like that Iconopop song. I don't care. I love it. Yep, exactly. Uh, okay, so you were uh, almost giving away our third and final topic of the evening. 
which is a woman who took the, what city was it? Uh, well, it says Vancouver, but I don't think it was in Langley. It was in Langley. Langley. She took the Langley Township to small claims court over damage to her vehicle after she moved over for a fire truck. Yeah, she took it to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So oh, yeah, there was a fire truck came up behind her. The fire truck couldn't pass her because traffic was blocking or whatever. She had a Ford F-350, I think, and then she drove it ahead and she scraped up against the concrete barrier or something, did some damage to her truck. Yeah, her, her explanation for it was essentially that she, the fire truck kept inching up behind her. She moved over as far as she could without scraping up against the concrete barrier, but the truck keeps coming. Mm. And so she, she figured she had to move over more. It's not a bad argument. I, you know, honestly, I buy it. And here's why. And had I been the person deciding the case, and obviously I wasn't, I would, uh, I would have decided differently. Um, and the reason for it is, do you remember that decision on speeding where the individual in traffic court argued that they had the defense of necessity because they needed to speed to uh, pass a vehicle in the other lane so they could move over to get out of the way of an aggressive driver behind them? This is vaguely familiar, but again, pre-concussion. Well, there was a case in traffic court where somebody succeeded in arguing that they were they were justified under the law of necessity, as in the harm that would have been caused by not speeding was greater than the harm avoided by speeding, um, that there was an imminent peril, and they moved their car over after they passed this vehicle that's in the, you know, slow-moving traffic lane to get out of the way of this aggressive driver. So if you look at the analysis there, necessity, imminent peril, harm caused versus harm avoided, she's actually in the right. She wasn't ticketed, though. That's a ticket circumstance. This is uh, yeah, but I her think, suing the no, government. I, I mean, No, I think, I think that if the defense of necessity works, then... You know, the the Civil Resolution Tribunal decision said that if she had no other option, if her evidence had established that she had no other option than to do that, then he would have found in her favor. But I think if you look at the law of driving, this is the Driving Law Podcast after all, if you look at the law of driving, she did in fact have no other option, legally speaking. What else was she to do? Just block the path of a fire truck? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the the what she was saying is that the fire truck was going to hit her if she didn't yeah. hit something else. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a bad argument. As I say, it's not a bad argument. I I I want to know more. Um, and I read the, you know, I read the uh, story on the inter interwebs. Um, but I'd like to know what was in front of her. Uh, why couldn't she have proceeded ahead straight? Was there, you know, somebody in front of her? What was what was blocking it? Yeah, I guess, I mean, those details weren't in the report. You're right. Um, but the law on your obligations when a emergency vehicle is approaching you, I, I don't think it accounts for circumstances like this. And, I, you know, I've been in situations where there's where I've seen, you know, traffic that's backed up at a light and rush hour and you have an emergency vehicle trying to get through and, you know, there's no way they can get through. Well, there's been lots of times that I've, been there with an emergency vehicle and I thought, you know, I could drive up on the curb and make some room. And if I was the very last car, I probably would consider doing it, you know, or I'd drive into traffic and 
you know, make a illegal right-hand turn from a left lane to go across in order to make this space for an ambulance or something like that. But all the law requires you to do is to pull over as close as practicable to the curb. I know. Should be more, maybe. I don't know. It just doesn't, it's, they're fluid situations. They are fluid situations, but I think the law should give people more direction because it happens often enough. I mean, especially with, you know, overdose crises and ambulances and, and fire personnel having to respond to that all the time. It happens often enough that we should have better laws governing what you have to do, how far you have to go. So people like this woman aren't confused to the point of damaging their vehicles um, in excess of $5,000 damage. And so people like in the two situations you just described know whether they're justified in making the decision to drive up on the sidewalk or to make an illegal turn. You don't know if that ambulance has somebody in there who's, you know, in the middle of having a heart attack or if it's a police car and they want to, you know, get to Tim Hortons. Don't, don't, don't make a police officer and donut joke. The police do not, I don't, I can't say they all don't, but the vast majority of police officers do not use their emergency equipment for personal reasons. Every once in a while you see something and you wonder. Every once in a while I see the, the police cars at intersections where the light's red, flip the lights and siren on, go through the intersection on the red light, and then turn them off and keep driving at a normal speed. That, I reasonably conclude in the circumstances, is never an emergency. Me too. Sad thing is I've seen it more than once. I've seen it lots of times. Police officers, if you're listening... Call out your colleagues. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, you're not doing that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If you're listening to the podcast, you're not one of the ones who's doing it. I don't know. So there you go. I wonder what is going to happen as a result of that decision, because, of course, the Civil Resolution Tribunal's decisions are insulated from appeal. The only thing that can be done is judicial review. So she would have to demonstrate that the tribunal's decision, if she wanted to appeal it, um, she would have to seek judicial review and demonstrate that the decision was patently unreasonable. It's under the Administrative Tribunals Act, so it invokes the patent unreasonableness standard. I know. Um, as I read the um, as I read the story, I was in agreement with the tribunal. <laughs> Really? And now you persuaded me that maybe I'm wrong once again. So I'm sitting here, is it patently unreasonable? I don't know. I haven't read the decision. I'd like to read the decision. I I mean, it would be a really interesting case to argue the, um, to argue the standard of review. Um, and the, you know, you could maybe, maybe persuade a court that they should consider correctness. Um, because, Let's not it's, talk about standards of review okay. until I collect some money. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I guess you're going to collect money because it's like the end of exam period. Although I heard Vavilov is giving very soon. I um I'm, what is it 100 bucks? 100 dollars. 100 bucks and the bet yeah. the bet was I can't remember what side I took. <laughs> well, we'll have to go back and find the podcast. Yes. And, uh, we discussed or this. If before. anyone out there knows Nobody's- Hey, look, someone reminded us the amount of the bet. That's so true. If whoever remind, remembers of- about the bet, could you please also remind me, did I say it wasn't going to come 
close to exam time and that it would come after exams? I can't remember. That seems like the type of thing I would say. I can't remember. But I might be just rewriting history so that I win the bet. I think you're rewriting history to win the bet. Um, I think we're done. Are we done? You always are like so excited to be done. This is why you're my reluctant sometimes co-host. Well, the point is that um, I run out of things to say and I had a head injury. (sighs) Oh, he's with the head injury. Okay. Well, if you are interested. uh, Let me tell you my, my head injury issue. Can mm-hmm. I speak with that a little bit? Okay. Sure. So I'm a person who's going to end up ultimately with an ICBC claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm sitting there assessing my concussion. And I really wonder how how you can assess one's concussion. Um, I've gone through this before where I've been concussed. Uh, and I I'm kind of want to go back and listen to those previous podcasts to see whether there's an, any indication of my brain being affected well you have the evidence uh if only you weren't so reluctant as a reluctant co-host okay um if you want to reach us uh at any time give us a call 604-685-8889 or find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another episode of driving law no uber next week (laughs) 